Turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And our subject is the beginning of the Gospel age. And we turn this morning to the Gospel of Mark to begin, God willing, a series of studies in this remarkable and wonderful gospel. The shortest gospel, the first known Christian tract, because that's what it is really, a tract. That's why it's short and terse in its statements and so striking, because it is designed for making known the gospel of Christ. It's an evangelistic tract, the Gospel of Mark. The author is unnamed in the original, but early Christian writers by AD 140 were all clear in their minds that it was by John Mark. Unanimously, without doubt, that was the oral tradition. And in fact, it was also called, particularly by Justin Martyr, the, the Memoirs of Peter. It was regarded as essentially the doctrine, the Gospel of Peter, Mark, John Mark being the penman. It was probably written between AD 50 and AD 70, and in all likelihood, the record here. It's just about within 20 years of the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection and ascension, this gospel tract appears. We see absurd things claimed on the internet by people who just do not know what they're talking about when they suggest to unwary readers of their various items the Gospels didn't appear in Christian literature for 100, 200 years after the death of Christ, so everything is uh, questionable and unreliable. That's complete nonsense. This is the first and the earliest of the Gospels. They agree with one another beautifully, perfectly. Their supposed discrepancies on close examination are no such thing. They're only the superficial assumptions of cynics and critics who don't trouble to look carefully at the text and see the harmonization of the Gospels and their different roles. Mark, John Mark, the penman, part author, a nephew of Barnabas, companion of the Apostle Paul, his first missionary journey. And uh, Barnabas, well, he's an encouragement, uh, rather Mark is an encouragement to us because uh, he wasn't a great success as an apostolic helper. And he let the side down and abandoned the journey and the mission and had to be set aside in his younger years but he shined later 
and he recovered himself and was faithful in all things and is later highly commended. John Mark. Well, if we've had a, a poor start in the Christian life and we've made mistakes and we've drifted a little here and there, we're not necessarily branded. Like John Mark, we can recover by the grace of God. We can make much better progress. And some who were slightly slow starters in their commitment and Christian service have become some of the greatest disciples, even martyrs in the history of the Christian church. And that's an encouragement to all of us. John Mark. Peter, in his first epistle, calls him Marcus, my son. They had become so close. Mark was his helper and is virtually his secretary. So here is the Gospel of John Mark. He writes very vividly. He focuses more on the acts of Christ and the miracles of Christ than he does actually on the teaching. He does both, but his emphasis is on the acts, and that's because this is an evangelistic tract, and he's constantly drawing attention to the divinity of Christ. But I'd like to go directly to the text. Now, I'm not going to attempt a harmony with the other Gospels, which is a delightful thing to do, but it would make our series of studies very much slower. In the main, we'll be looking at just the portions recorded by Mark. Verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Amplified Version says the beginning of the facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's completely wrong. The translator of Mark in the Amplified Version is uh, interpreting matters uh, to his own uh, mind there. The beginning of the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, the text means what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel here is viewed in its entirety, if you like, the gospel age, the coming of the good news age, the age of the good tidings, the amazing and the wonderful news of free redemption through the shed blood of Christ, of grace and mercy and peace and reconciliation. When did it all start? Oh, we say, with the coming of Christ. No, says Mark, with the coming of John the Baptist. So he dates for us the beginning of the gospel age. When does the clock start? When did it begin? Before the revealing of Christ himself and his public ministry, it starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. If you like, it was the first, the first Christian minister. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his full titles, Jesus, his personal name. He was truly human, 
truly man, Christ, which comes from the Greek equivalent to the he- of the Hebrew Messiah. Jesus, Messiah, the appointed one, the Son of God, his divinity, his Godhead. It's all there. Mark writes very, as I said, tersely, concisely, and he's got his whole Saviour in the very first sentence. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, what is the beginning, Mark? Verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, as prophesied, the beginning is the coming of the forerunner. Never forget the forerunner, John the Baptist. When Christ appeared, it wasn't that there had been some preaching by John the Baptist. And then Christ appears, and he begins to be made known. And the news of him spreads, and it grows and grows, and so does his following. That's a wrong concept. When Christ appeared, he had been prepared for. And something had happened, something quite sensational and dramatic in the land, which meant that everybody knew that the time had come. Messiah, his age, had dawned. A new age, a new dawn. Pay attention, Messiah is announced. The ministry of John the Baptist was astonishing. And everybody either heard him or knew about him. The whole land was awakened. This is all the more amazing that the nation rejected Christ. Because even before his own public ministry began, he was made famous by the proclamation of John. Now, when you read the gospel, you see this quite clearly. But uh, we can rush over it and miss it, the impact that the ministry of John made. Verse 2 then, as it is written in the prophets, and it is written in practically all of the prophets, but only two will be quoted by Mark. Remember, Mark is in a hurry. This is a tract. I've tried to write tracts. And he writes so much, and then the one who is uh, anxious to produce the tract and edit it says, it's too long, it's too long. It's got to be half the length or people will throw it away and they won't read it. They won't have the patience. So there's pressure upon you to get it all into two pages. Mark didn't have quite that constraint and restriction, but you can see he's writing under pressure. This has got to be taken in by people. So it's very brief. As it is written in the prophets, he says, take my word for it, I'm only going to quote two. This isn't going to be a dissertation on prophecy. And that's all he does. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. He's going to quote Malachi and he's going to quote Isaiah. That's all. But it's in all the prophets. And we remember that there's only one great historical figure in the world who has ever been prophesied. 
Prophecy of people, of persons, is extremely rare in human history. Vague nonsense prophecies abound. But there's only been one person who has been in detail, many, many times, very specifically prophesied, even centuries before he came, and that's Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the astonishing things that may well be brought up in the day of judgment, that things that were amazing, verified and authenticated Christ, the very phenomenon of prophecy, and people paid no attention. Of course, there are some subsidiary figures. John the Baptist himself was prophesied. And roughly the mode of his ministry and what it would be for. But nobody like Christ. As it is written in the prophets. And the Jews cherished their prophets. Behold, I send my messenger as John the Baptist, before thy face, is called Elijah in the prophets, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And here it seems to be addressed to Christ. Let's just take a moment to look at Malachi in chapter 3. And Malachi chapter 3 and verse 5, And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and so on. But I'll read it with the first three verses. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And she shall purify the sons of Levi. That was Christ. And John the Baptist before him would call for repentance. And speak of the remission of sin. And Christ would make it possible by his atoning death and suffering on Calvary's cross. And he would be followed by a great judgment. AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem to Rome, the destruction of the city and of the land. So there would be, there would be warning. It's all here in Malachi chapter 3, the forerunner and what he would do. And then we could go to Isaiah chapter 40, and I read verses 3 to 5. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is quoted also by Mark. Every valley shall be exalted. That's quoted by Matthew and Luke. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is double prophecy, dual sense in prophecy. There are people today, they say there's no dual sense in prophecy. The scripture and prophecy only has one meaning. The scriptures are full of dual sense in prophecy. It's simple. This is how it works. 
the first fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 40 was the release of the Jews from captivity in Babylon. The prophecies are literally fulfilled when the captive nation is released and a vast number, a large number, minority altogether, are able to return to Jerusalem and to Israel. But that's only a partial fulfillment. That in its turn, that token, that literal token, is a prediction of the coming of Christ and how multitudes of Jews and Gentiles, like captives released, will return to God through Christ. And so Mark applies it. It's already been applied by the Jews to the release from the Babylonian captivity. And now for the second time, it's applied by Matthew and Mark and Luke to the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Christ. The prophecy had two fulfillments, a physical fulfillment, which only partly honored the terms of the prophecy and the spiritual fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And that's how prophecy works. And you don't understand Isaiah unless you understand the dual sense in prophecy. A token fulfillment, a true fulfillment to all the great prophecies. And there it is. There's John the Baptist. We come back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, there was an enormous problem. The Jews, at that time, there were so many obstacles to their believing in the Messiah and his coming, believing in Christ. And the prophecy of Isaiah and Malachi refers to these obstacles every mountain made low, the valleys lifted up, the crooked places made straight, first application, that difficult journey of the Jews returning from captivity in the Babylonian Empire, crossing all sorts of mountainous and dangerous terrain to get home, then the spiritual fulfillment the twisted obstacles that stopped the Jews from understanding about Messiah. And all this had to be cut through. Their mental conditioning, their clergy, the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees had taught them completely wrongly that salvation was in works. You observe all the minute regulations of the ceremonial law and God will be pleased with you. That was completely wrong. The ceremonial law was supposed to draw attention to the need for the great coming sacrifice of Christ. But no, the, their clergy taught them the fact that you meticulously observe all the washings and the fastings and the ceremonial worship pleases God. Salvation by works. 
All that had to be got out of their minds somehow before they would understand a saviour who was the one promised who would make an atonement and give free salvation. That was a huge obstacle. And then the clergy, the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees, they controlled all the platforms. They controlled everything with an iron hand. You couldn't preach, you couldn't teach without their permission, without their training, without their licenses. They controlled everything. How were you going to get a hearing? Well, John was able, by the power of God, John the Baptist, to cut through all that. He preached in the wilderness, beyond their reach, outside their license, as it were. And the population, en masse, went out to him, the barren wilderness of Judea, undulating landscape, dry as a bone, covered in shale, pebbles and sand, sparse vegetation. That's where John was, beyond their control. And out went the vast crowds, and all the land knew about it. It was a sensation. He performed no mighty works, no miracles, but his preaching by the power of God just compelled the multitudes. Remember that? He was out there in the wilderness, out of reach. And even that had a message. This is what we're in, John would proclaim. A wilderness, a spiritual wilderness. There needs to be vast change and repentance and true conversion. You know, when John cried, and this is as recorded in Matthew and Luke, repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye. As many of the old writers insisted, that should actually be translated, convert ye. Be converted. The Greek word translated repent, turn about, doesn't only mean repent, it means be made new, be changed. And it certainly would be more accurate, though we'll take repent, to say that he preached the gospel of conversion. It's like the Wesley brothers and the great George Whitfield. When the Great Awakening began in 1731, and all the people in England went to church, Everyone was a churchgoer because it was the law in those days. And so everybody worshipped. And the worship was Protestant. And the Bible was the liturgy. They weren't saved. That was the trouble. There was great degradation. The people's lives were far from Christian. They didn't actually have personal salvation and walk with Christ but they knew a lot. They knew their Bibles. They knew the doctrines. So how were, was Whitfield and the Wesley brothers going to convince the population that for all their knowledge and orthodoxy, they were not saved? What was going to be their emphasis? Well, it's obvious. Their emphasis was the new birth. They proclaimed the new birth and conversion and by this means 
They could show the people in their preaching they needed salvation. And that's exactly what happened with John. He came to these Old Testament educated Jewish people uh, believing in a work salvation and he preached convert ye not just repent ye be changed be radically changed and what did he do? He baptized. Well baptism was what they did to proselytes. If a Gentile wanted to become as much as he could become a Jew. He could never fully become a Jew. But he could become attached to the Jewish church. He would always be a second-class Jew, a second-class citizen of the Jewish community. But he could give up being a Gentile and worshipping his idols, and he could, to some extent become a Jew. What would they do to him by way of a ceremony to mark his total change of religion from Gentile idolatry to the Jewish faith? Well, they would baptize him. Baptism among the Jews was for proselytes, indicating they had converted and totally changed their religion. And had you said to a Jewish person, in the days of John the Baptist, what is baptism? He would have told you it is a sign that you've changed your religion. Can you imagine the impact when John said to all the Jews, you must be baptized. There must be an era of total change. Everything is going to change. He didn't know the full story himself but he knew that Christ would bring change. This was the end of the ceremonial law. John was the first Christian minister. You could say the age of the Jews and the ceremonial law was already dying and going out because John's message had nothing to do with that. It was a judgment is coming, you've got to change. And repent of your sin and be different. And if you accept the need for change, you will be baptized. And at first, even the Sadducees and the Pharisees, unbelievably, went to him for baptism. Why? Did they sincerely want change? Oh no. They were going to cling on to their office to their control of all the Jewish platforms. They went to be baptized, probably to stay in the favor of the people because John at the time was the flavor of the month. He was everything to the people. They thought he was marvelous, this Elijah-like Old Testament prophet with his mighty and very severe judgmental preaching. He warned of the wrath to come. And it did come in AD 70 with the destruction of their city and their land. They were warned by John the Baptist. And everyone knew. Of course, when you get to John's gospel, and John was an eyewitness of this, 
He tells you that John said to his disciples, John the Baptist, Behold, Christ Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And John was the disciple, was one of those who heard John the Baptist say those words. This isn't in Mark, this is left to John the disciple's gospel to tell us that. And John and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, immediately left the side of John, though they loved him, and followed Christ. But here, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance, of conversion, brand new to the Jews. They thought they were born as those who were accepted by God. No, said John the Baptist, you've got to be changed. Baptism and the remission of sins. And verse 5, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And I've emphasized all this because, dear friends, it's wonderful to grasp how Christ was pre-announced and how the whole land was shaken and prepared for him. Verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair, a girdle of skin about his loins. He seemed like Elijah. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. It doesn't say he only ate that. But uh, yes, he lived out in the wilderness and lived very simply. And his life was a rebuke to the people. All they were doing was moaning about the Roman occupation, which kept them from being prosperous and wealthy. And verse 7, he preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me. How great is Messiah, is the one who follows me. I'm not worthy even to stoop down and unloose the latchet of his shoes. Verse 8, I indeed have baptized you with water. That's only a sign that you're ready to change. But he shall baptize you, overwhelm you with life, the Holy Spirit, spiritual life. He dispenses that. He has that. He's so much greater. I am his forerunner. I bring the sign. He brings the reality. So, the announcements of John and then the coming of Christ himself. Verse 9. In that climate, after 400 years, the intertestamental period after Malachi, Malachi was the last of the prophets. God has sent them no prophet, no privileges, no signs, no wonders. And now at last, some of the people are longing for the power of God to return and the promised Messiah. The period of waiting, and people are waiting, and the faithful minority 
of true believers are pining and longing for Christ. The sensational ministry of John the Baptist. And then, verse 9, just catch the drama of it, friends. And it came to pass in those days, at that time, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. The baptism of Christ was his first public appearance. Why was Christ baptized? A baptism of repentance? Why was he baptized? He needed no repentance. He was the perfect, holy Son of God. Why? He was baptized to sanctify or dedicate his life to obedience of the Father. He'd humbled himself and become a man to be our representative, to live a life of perfect obedience on our behalf. To him, baptism was his act of obedience. It's an act of obedience for us too. He was baptized because he was conscious that in all things he was to be the forerunner of the people he would save. Everything he requires of us, he has done himself. He requires us to be baptized and to make our profession for him and he succumbed to that himself. Matthew records that John didn't want to baptize him. How can I do this to you? And he insisted. And John, of course, obeyed. Mark is being brief. He's writing a tract. He doesn't tell us some of the details. But Christ was baptized to endorse the message of conversion and to be our forerunner. And verse 10, straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw, and the text here suggests it's just Christ who saw it, but in the Gospel of John, it's quite clear that God, John the Baptist saw it too. The heavens rent asunder in some remarkable way, and the Holy Spirit descended taking the symbolic form of a dove, the symbol of peace and gentleness descending upon him. So John could see that Christ was truly Messiah and was working, if you like, hand in glove with the Holy Spirit. Here's the Trinity, Christ the Holy Spirit, and then, verse 11, God the Father, and there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom we could translate, is all my delight. Verse 12, 
God the Father is so delighted in God the Son. And God the Son, of course, is delighted in the Father, each member of the Trinity. But here, Christ is singled out. He is the special delight of the Father. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Your ESV and your NIV, the popular modern versions, mistranslate it, which is very sad. They say, with whom I am well pleased. That's entirely wrong. God the Father is not well pleased or delighted with the Son. His delight is in the Son. The Son is God as much as the Father. All the Father's delight is in the Son. That's very profound. It's not merely with the Son. In is correct. And it's very important to us because in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 1 and verse 5, and with this I have to come to conclusion, we read these words. Well, I'll read verses 5 and 6 from Ephesians 1. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, is the delight of God, but listen, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. In the beloved. The Father's pleasure is in the Son. He's loved him and all his pleasure is in Christ in eternity past. All his pleasure is in Christ in heaven. All his pleasure is in Christ, in Christ's compassionate ministry on earth. All his pleasure is in Christ as he suffers and dies on Calvary's cross and does that astonishing thing and bears away an eternity of punishment out of sheer love for his people. All his pleasure is in Christ as he ascends and returns to glory. And we are seen by the Father in Christ. If God looks upon us, he is indignant at our sin and horrified at our perversity and our twistedness. Oh, but we're saved. We're converted. We love him. Well, let's put it another way. He is so often pained and disappointed when he sees our falls and our inconsistencies and our wrongdoing. So he chooses to see us in Christ. And in Christ is his infinite delight. And we are seen as being Christ's his possession, part of him, under his merits, in him. He looks at us in Christ. 
So these words are precious to us in the Gospel of Mark, where we read, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom is all my pleasure, and we are in Christ. That's just the introduction, friends, to the Gospel of Christ of Christ in Mark, the Gospel age, beginning with John, and Christ has now come. And God willing, we'll study further these great passages.